At our church, Jesus is Lord. That single belief calls us together as a community and sends us into our world with hope and purpose. At our church, your past will never define your future. There's always redemption, which means there's always a brighter day. At our church, we don't think we're better than any other church out there. We're just doing our best to become our best. At our church, we want you to believe in God, but we also want you to know that God believes in you. We are not against people who don't attend church anywhere. Instead, we pursue them with love, the very same love that's pursuing us. At our church, we're learning to serve God with all our hearts, and we're learning to worship Him with all our lives. And if you're looking for the perfect church, we're not it. At our church, we will make mistakes, but we will choose to grow from them. At our church, we're part of a global community that's knit together by the resurrection of Jesus. And by the way, at our church, we believe that really happened too. At our church, we will engage with people who are in real need because we are the hands and the feet of Christ. And finally, we need you to hear this loud and clear. At our church, it's not really our church at all. It's His. And we live and move and breathe in His church for His glory and His fame, not ours. So here's the invitation. You're invited to jump in with your whole heart at your own pace and to experience the life that awaits you in Christ. Friends, this is going to be good. Welcome to our church. So as we came to the uh, closing quarter of 2013, really the, the last half of 2013 in many ways, and as the opening of 2014 was quickly approaching, one of the questions that I have been wrestling with and that we here at Mosaic Church in the leadership have been wrestling with is, uh, what exactly is the church? What is she supposed to be? What is she supposed to look like? What is she supposed to do? How is she supposed to function? Uh, Because we wanted to wrestle with that as we were trying to think through where God wanted us to go in 2014 and beyond. In, In essence, it's this way. If we were to say, this is the church, and then fill in that blank. This is the church sentence, paragraph, whatever you want to put, what would that sentence or paragraph be? What would that look like? That was sort of the wrestle. And when I came across that particular video that we just watched, I I liked it, right? When I saw it the first time, I'm like, I like that video. That's a pretty cool video. That describes a, a pretty cool church. I think that if we could say our church was that church, that that's how we functioned, I think most of us would say, I'm part of a pretty cool church. I I like what it's doing. I like what it stands for. I like where it goes. And I would agree. It's a good video. I think that if Jesus were here with us and he were to watch that video, I think he'd like it too. I think he'd go, that's a good video. It's a good video. But I think he would say this, that is a good starting point. It's where we begin. It's not where we end because the view that Jesus has of the church, the purpose that he established the church for is beyond our wildest imagination. It is beyond videos like that. It goes into places and breaks boundaries that we would even be shocked at, I think, if we actually took the time to go, this is the reality of the church. I think that as you look at 
what God reveals, his view of the church is throughout the New Testament, uh, you start realizing this is a big deal. And God has a big vision and a big view of the church and established the church for a big reason. I think the the journey really begins in a shocking moment where Jesus was hanging with his disciples and he reveals to them in sort of almost a graduation speech of sorts toward the end of their journey together as they've been following him, they've been watching him, learning from him, and they're sort of ready to hear, okay, since you've been following me, just so you know, here's the plan as we enter the future, here's what I'm going to do with this, here's what I'm going to build. In a moment like that, he reveals to them the reality of what the church is going to be, and it begins to give us a clue into the massive view that God holds of the church and the expectation that he has affected on us to say, here's what I'm going to do with you, here's what I'm going to make you, so buckle up. Uh, In order to really fully understand how incredibly wondrous God's view of the church is, I think we need to jump into that story. So if you would, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible with you, under the seats there's a bunch of them. And if you don't have a good Bible at home, take one of ours, write your name in it, keep it for yourself. We are going to go to Matthew chapter 16 in your Bibles, or if you're in one of our Bibles, it's page 533, page 533, Matthew chapter 16. Okay, so in Matthew chapter 16, the story begins in verse 13, and here's what it says. Uh, It says, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples a question. Okay, now, let's just stop there. Uh, We want to read on, we will, but in order to grasp the magnitude of this story, we've got to understand that this first line gives us the context for everything we need to know to experience this story the way the disciples are about to experience it. You don't just breeze over, Jesus walked into the region of Caesarea Philippi, because that's a big deal. We know the disciples were with him because it says, and he asked his disciples a question, what is Caesarea Philippi, and why is it so important? Important to this story. Let me tell you. Caesarea Philippi sits about 25 miles away from the central part of Galilee where the most devout Jews really spent most of their time. Remember that down in Jerusalem, that was the political Jewish leadership capital, and the Jerusalem Jews thought of the Galilean Jews as backwards, but they weren't actually backwards. They were actually just very devout, mature Jews that were living God's way as best they knew how. And in Galilee, if you lived there, you were very conscious of the realities of living protectively under the law away from all the yucky stuff in the world, the darkness, the craziness. 25 miles away from you was Caesarea Philippi, a very, very different town than the northern part of Galilee. 25 miles during this time, remember, is far enough that you could live your whole life without ever going 25 miles, but near enough that you would know what's going on 25 miles away, right? So it's that sort of, we know what's happening there, but we don't go there. That's 25 miles. Caesarea Philippi has a history of pagan worship that goes way, way back. In the time of the Old Testament, mid-Old Testament, uh, there was a season where the worship of Baal had become a central reality. Uh, And you, you know some of the stories that we bump into during the worship of Baal. And much of the central part of that worship happened in the region of Caesarea Philippi and in this particular part 
of this city, and there's a reason for that. As we walk into the Greek Empire, the, Ces- uh, the Caesarea Philippi became a central spot for the idol worship that the Greeks had, specifically worshiping the gods of fertility, of whom... Uh, In the Roman world, the greater god of fertility was the god of Pan. And so in this region, the gods of fertility were worshipped. And what they would do is, they would worship them there through all sorts of incredibly gruesome and horrid ceremonies to try to entice the gods to continue to keep everything fertile, fertile in the land and in the people. When the Romans came in, they continued that tradition in this region and utilized this region for the worship of the god Pan in order to establish fertility. The reason this region was such a focal point for pagan worship was because uh, the Caesarea Philippi was sort of built in a very rocky part, almost on sort of one large rocky region. And if you're in Caesarea Philippi, there is a section there outside of the city where there is this rock wall, if you will, sort of cliffs and stuff. And To this day, there is a cave there, a huge cave, and out of the cave, a spring emerges out of the cave. So what they believed in Caesarea Philippi, especially the Greeks and the Romans, is that this cave was the dwelling place of the gods of fertility because of the spring water that came out of it. So they would carve into the rock little niches, and they would put their idols into the rock so that if you were standing in the city and you looked over at the rock, you would see the carved idols, you would know that that's a very important and spiritual place from a pagan standpoint, and you would know that that cave was the place where you were enticing the gods of fertility to do what you want. They also believed that the gods that were in the cave guarded the gateway of this world into the, the world of Hades or hell. In other words, there was actually pagan belief that that cave was the gates of hell, the gateway into Hades. So it was a place where you would go and you would call the gods out from all of their different other worlds to come and influence you. It was a dark, evil, horrid, terrible place. The red light district of northern Galilee without a shadow of a doubt. And if you were a good Jewish boy or a good Jewish girl, you avoided Caesarea Philippi for sure. And what you didn't do was you didn't take your disciples on a field trip to Caesarea Philippi, okay? That you didn't do. It would be like us going, oh, we get some disciples. Let's go to the red light district and show them around. I mean, that was like, that's not good, And so you look at a rabbi who goes, you know, Jesus found himself in Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. If you were reading it in the context, you'd all gasp and go, he took him where? Somebody needs to get that guy's head checked. You don't take disciples there. You don't even go there. So he's in the region of Caesarea Philippi and he's walking with them and it says he asked them a question in this place as they're probably bunched up real close together going, I mean, should we be here? And this seems very odd. Can we move through as quickly as possible? And at first, when he asked the first question, it almost seems as though this is one of those questions you ask to distract the the, the, the scared children from what's happening. So you kind of go, hey, by the way, while we're here, let's just talk for a second. Look, Jesus goes, um, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? It seems like an innocent enough question. Hey, by the way, since we're walking through hell itself right here, by the cave of hell, the gates of hell, uh, who do people say I am? And so they, they answer, conversation begins. <coughs> Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, 
you suddenly realize that the conversation Jesus is having is not simply a distraction from the reality and context around them. He's up to something as he always is. He brought them here with a specific and distinct purpose and he's about to show them something. So you start getting excited and like, oh, oh, that's a big question. He's asking them something. Now realize at this point, as they've journeyed with him, they've watched him, they've heard him, they've seen him, he's declared himself Messiah. But this is that moment where you're looking at your recruits, your disciples and going, okay, boys, who do you think I am? I mean, let's, let's talk for real. Uh, after all this journey with me, who am I? Who am I? This is the, the big million dollar question, right? And look what it says. And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. There it is, man. Peter just that doesn't wait one second. We know who you are. You've said it. You've shown it. We've followed you. You are the Christ. You are the promised one. You're the Messiah. You're the creator and sustainer in flesh and blood. This is awesome, and we're with you. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is quite a statement considering where they're standing, isn't it? I can imagine, though I don't know for sure, that at that moment they were well in view of the cave of hell, right? Standing there, here's this rock, all the evil there, and Jesus looks at Peter and he goes, yep, you have, you have totally nailed it, Peter. I am the Christ, I am the one that was sent, I am here to do something that is going to redeem everything, I am here to restore, God revealed that to you, and let me tell you something, since that is true, I'm going to build something, my church, and it is going to stand up against places like that, man, this is what we're going to do, we are going to do some stuff that's going to blow your mind. Now, when we read this and it says, you are Peter, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church, There's great theological debate about what that statement means, right? I mean, what is the rock he's talking about? Is it Peter? Does Peter become a central figure that we then develop new Peters after that that develop into what we have today? Is it actually Jesus? And he's using that as a reverse statement. Is Peter the pebble and Jesus the big rock? I mean, you know, we've, we've heard it all. We've gone the Greek route. We've done the stuff. What is it? What is Jesus talking about? So we debate back and forth about who the rock is that he's going to build his church on. And I think we've missed the point, honestly, as we try to debate on which small little rock or which big rock we are talking about. I think what Jesus is doing here is actually what he always tends to do and take something and expand it beyond anything we imagine break all of the boundaries and show us no 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 no. don't try to figure out which rock it is here's the rocks that I'm going to build this thing on let's take a look at this do you think it's valid to say that what Jesus was meaning here was that he was going to build the church on the foundation on the reality of the truth that Peter just declared that he is the Messiah he is the Redeemer he is the promise he is going to redeem and we're going to build the church on that reality that Jesus is who he said he was and he is going to become the cornerstone of the entire world of the church he's going to build. Do you think that that's valid? Well, we know it's valid because in 2 Peter, we are actually told that Jesus is the cornerstone of the church and the church is built on that cornerstone. Bam, valid, gone, check. 
It's built on Jesus. Do you think it's valid to say that Jesus was going to build the church on the foundation of a band of crazies that he brought together that he's going to empower by his Holy Spirit and he's going to birth out of them an incredible organism that's going to grow into a movement that is going to break cultural boundaries and geographical boundaries and generational boundaries and move into this world today and that the foundation of that church is going to be the prophets and the apostles that he is empowering right now? Yep, that's totally valid. It's actually in Scripture. He's building the church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. As the cornerstone, Jesus sits there and weighs everything in. So that, that's valid. He's building the church on that rock. Not on Peter, but on the reality that Peter represents. On the people that are going to be the church. And considering where he's standing in Caesarea Philippi, And considering the history of the Jewish people where they were taught to retreat, to hide, and to stay safe from the darkness because if it touches them, it'll make them unclean and you don't go anyplace where it's gonna come and make you unclean. Do you think that Jesus may have been standing there and going, do you see where we're standing? We are standing on the rock of Caesarea Philippi at the gates of hell in the pagan world at its best in Northern Galilee. We are in the red light district right here as far as spiritualism is concerned. This is where evil is born out of that cave. People literally ask hell to come here and I'm gonna start building my church right here in the darkness, in the death. The church is going to become a force of light and life and freedom that represents my redemption and carries it into places like this and it is on these foundations that I'm going to build the church. It will overcome even the darkest of dark places in which we function. Do you think that that's valid? Well, I don't know, but I say, I'm going to say yes on that one. If, if I'm wrong, I'll, Jesus will go, uh, Caesarea Philippi was an accident. And I'll go, sorry. It seemed like it meant a lot to me at the, at the time. But here's the deal. It seems to me that if I were a rabbi and I brought my boys to Caesarea Philippi, to the gates of hell, and then I made the statement, and the church will overcome the gates of hell, I think as a teacher, I go, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. He's looking at his disciples and saying to them, I'm about to build something that is going to be built on the foundation of truth that you just declared, built by and through you guys as I empower you and live in you and through you. And when it is built, it is going to come into the darkness, the death and the bondage, and bring light and life and freedom to these places. And it is going to be an incredible force, unstoppable in every way, right up to the very foundations and gates of hell. So do not be afraid. Let's go get them. Let's go out there and become the ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And then you suddenly go, wait, ambassadors, that sounds familiar. And we emerge from this story into the New Testament as God reveals to us what the church was intended to represent and is intended to represent. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are told that we, the church, the people, are new creations. The old is gone and the new has come for he has rescued us and redeemed us and restored our purpose. Now, he says, but it doesn't stop there. You are now going to become ministers of reconciliation to those who do not know the redemptive reality and you are going to carry the redemptive reality to them so that they will come to know it. We are the gospel carriers. We are those who carry with us the kingdom of God, the spirit of God as we enter into a world of death to bring life to that world. It, It goes on as God continues to reveal, and he says, look, here's the deal. In that very passage in 2 Corinthians, you are going to be my ambassadors. 
You are actually going to represent me now. The church is the ambassador of Christ, and we are his ambassadors on planet Earth. It's, it's beautifully said in the book of Ephesians chapter 3. I just want to read this to you. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. He's been uh, under persecution. Uh, he's been suffering and struggling because of the great work he's been doing, especially among the Gentiles. And so the church in Ephesus is kind of feeling bad for Paul and kind of being a little discouraged by his suffering. And so he writes them to say, no, 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 no. Let me explain to you what's actually going on. Paul says he has this incredible privilege to take the gospel, the mysteries of God that were not revealed to generations of past that are now revealed that the God's redemptive plan is not just for the Jewish people, but for all people, for the Gentiles also. And in verse seven of chapter three, he says this, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So Paul says, it, is, it has been my privilege to carry the good news of Jesus, the gospel, the redemptive work of Christ into not only the Jewish world but the Gentile world for all people. And as I do that, the mysteries of God are being revealed and that is establishing the continued growth of the church that God has purposed for great things. Watch. Now buckle up. Here's where it gets fascinating, okay? So that... Through the church, you ready? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities. Oh, it gets better, wait. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He doesn't even stop on planet earth. It's so insane. You see, what I'm doing is I'm establishing the gospel so that the church will grow, so that the manifold wisdom of God and his mysteries would be made known through the church, not just to those on planet earth, but the very rulers and authorities in heavenly places will look at the church and go, wow, there's redemption. Wow, there's redemption. Unbelievable. There's the work of God. That's who we were purposed to be. That our story, the church's story, would make its ripples into the authorities and powers of the heavenly places and they would look at us and go, now that is the work of God. That's insane. Look at this. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has, that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. I am suffering so that you, the church, will become beautiful so that the world and the worlds beyond would know the redemptive reality of Jesus through your story. That's a big deal. Now, as though God says, that's not enough. That's pretty cool. So now you know it's an unstoppable force that's going to move into darkness, bringing light. It's going to be phenomenal. It's going to be amazing. It's going to overcome darkness and death and bondage, the gates of hell itself. He goes, now I just want you to know a couple other things about the church. If, if you're afraid as you go into this crazy world and live radically and differently, don't worry because here's how much I care about the church. You ready for this? He reveals in multiple places 
how he views the church, how he sees us as the church. Uh, in the book of uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, and in Colossians 1.18, and multiple other places in Corinthians, Romans, and other books that Paul also wrote, uh, he says that the church is the body of Christ, and Christ is the head of the body. The church is the body of Christ. Don't read that and go, that, that sounds normal. Who, uh, yeah, uh, Disney is the body of Walt. It's a little odd. I feel like that's, you, know, you, you, you don't talk like that. But, but Jesus goes, no, 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 the church is my body. What does that mean? Well, clearly part of it is that Christ resides in the body of the church through the Holy Spirit and moves in and through us. We know that. But here's what I love about that description. He could have picked, picked multiple things to describe us. But uh, when Jesus says, you are my body, what should we immediately go? Going, wow, that, that's big. How much do you care about your body? Now, some of you might say, I, I should eat better. I, I get it. I, I, totally. Stewardship is a big deal. But let's take it into a different kind of context for a second, and then you'll see that we all care deeply about our bodies, right? You're in your car. You're sitting at a traffic light. Somebody walks up to your window, tap, tap. They have a gun in their hand. They say, I want your car. What, what's your strategy? Is your strategy, no, no, I like the car. I'm keeping the car. You want the car? You go through me. No, 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 no. Bad strategy. If that's your plan, change it, okay? Here's what you do. You go, take the car, just don't hurt me. That's right. Take the car, just please don't hurt me. We fall on our knees. I beg you, just don't hurt me. Wallet, you want the wallet? You want my clothes? Here, take it all. Just don't hurt me. I want to keep the body, okay? That's the piece I want to keep, the body. If you kill the body or hurt the body, that's a problem for me. We care deeply about our bodies. When there's a big storm inside, we don't go, oh my gosh, go stand in front of the house, block it, everybody, family, grab. No, we go into the middle closet inside the house. We, we put blankets over our bodies and we go, I hope we live. <laughs> See, what we do is we protect the body at almost all cost. So when Jesus says the church is my body, we ought to go, oh, hold on, you're protecting us like, like we're your body? Yep, that's it, man. I'm not gonna let anything happen to this thing. And l listen, the, the church is going to fulfill its purpose because that's what I've said and it's my body and it's going to do what I've determined it to do. He doesn't stop there though. I mean, we should be going at this point going, fearless, unstoppable force, carrying light and life into the darkness and we're his body, he loves us, this is incredible. And he goes, well, hold on, hold on, I'm not done yet. There's another description I'd like to add to the equation. We go into Revelation and we see all these incredible events take place in Revelation and there's, there's this bride and this groom always involved. And we're like, huh, there's a groom and there's a bride and they're so happy and the bride's being beautified and the groom's all excited and he comes and gets the bride and he brings her and then suddenly we find out, well, hold on a second, guess who the groom is? The groom is Jesus and guess who the bride is? The bride is the church. That's insane, the bride is the church. So we go, the bride is the church and then it suddenly dawns on me. There is one exception to my body. I will protect my body in lieu of a car, a house, a storm, or anything else. But if you come in my home and you mess with my family, you come try to hurt my wife, let me tell you something, man. My body stops mattering. It just does. I will stand in the gap. If I find out you are going to hurt my wife, you will have to come through me first. And if I find out you hurt my wife, then I will come through you. That's how it plays. Because I protect my bride. My, my wife, man, my, my kids, I, that's... that's that's territory you don't mess with. So, so listen, if you violate someone's body in our culture, that is a gruesome and horrid violation and act, right? I mean, the body is precious. And if you violate somebody's, somebody's bride, that's a big deal. 
You don't do that. They're coming for you. And so Jesus goes, the the church is my body and my bride. That's how I feel about her. That's how I watch over her. That's how we should feel. Oh my goodness. I mean, what do we have to be afraid of? We have been tasked with carrying redemption into the dark world in an offensive manner, uh, on, on the offense, and God is watching over us like we are his body and his bride. We have nothing to be afraid of. So considering God's incredibly high view of the church, his incredibly high vision for the church, we started wrestling over the last few months here asking, Spirit of God, what do you want for us? What do you want from us? What do you want to do in us and through us in 2014? What is the vision you have for this? And as myself and uh, many of the other leaders here, uh, elders and deacons wrestled through and had conversations and talked and laid different pieces of the puzzle out. And this is important and that's important. Studied scripture is calling us to this. Here's this. This is going to, we were looking at all that. I, I felt about a month and a half ago, like I was entering 2014 and it was going to be like uh, the 2014 vision talk this, this uh, weekend was going to be like a, a bunny bouncing from one rabbit trail to the next, right? Have you ever experienced that? We're going to do a little of this. We're going to do some of that. It's going to be awesome over here. And you're going to go, what? What on earth? I, I'm confused. I don't understand. The church sounds awesome, but what do we do? And I just, I just could not find the, the clarity and, the, and the, the, the crystallization of all this content into a nice, neat little list. I don't really do lists, but I, I needed something. And so about a month and a half ago, I'm, I'm on a date night with my wife, and uh, at the end of the date night, we're getting ready to head back to uh, the house and relieve the babysitters. And, and uh, this is kind of running through my mind and I'm still wrestling like, God, I, 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 I kind of know what you want for the church, but I, but I, I just can't seem to nail it down to, to see it clearly. Uh, everyone's uh, put in stuff and it's there. But I just don't know. So I'm sitting in my, in my car and I just randomly uh, get the sense like you should ask Brooke what, what, what she thinks. And so I go, hey, hon, just out of curiosity, uh, three years from now, we're, we're down the road three years, you're looking back, what do you see, like, Mosaic Church is, you know, fill in the blank, what, what have we become? And my wife does what she always does, she's a processor, she is a realist, she, you know, she takes my big dreams and visions, and then she comes alongside, and then she makes them real, right? Feels like deflation, but it's not actually, it's just <laughs> making them real, right? She goes, that sounds awesome, that's not ever going to happen, because that's insane, we, but we can do this, and then I go, that's small, and then I, I drag her more deeply into it, then she drags me back, then we fight each other for a while, and then when we land is always beautiful. That's how God designed us. It's not pretty, but it's awesome. And so that's how we function. So I'm sitting in the car and I'm like, what do you think? And, and she says what I know she always says in those moments. That's a really big question. I can't just spew stuff out on a question like that. I need time to think and, and process. I'm like, all right, well, I'm just, you know, linger with the question and we'll talk about it in a few days. And, and suddenly she goes, I mean, I, I have a, a few immediate thoughts that come to mind, which was sort of unusual because you know, she likes to really take time, process, and articulate. And so I go, well, just, I mean, just randomly, throw some stuff out. I mean, I'm not asking for like the world, just go. So she starts out by saying, I, I hope that we are a church that regularly and consistently shares the wonder of the gospel with the people around us. That's where she starts. First sentence, I'm like, ooh, that, that's, a, that's a good sentence. Check. We'd been talking about that as a leadership. That's important. And then she starts down the system. So after about a minute of her talking or less, I pull my phone out and I start doing stuff on my phone. And she goes, are you, are you texting while I'm, I'm talking to you? It's date night. And I go, no, no, I'm not texting. I'm taking notes. 
dead serious. I don't take notes, but I was like, I need to take notes because every word she was saying was pulling the content that God had already been stirring in us as a leadership here and just putting it into neat little sentences in little steps. And I'm like, I so need this. And so she articulated several of the things that she saw. And it was such a confirming moment as God was bringing to my heart through my wife and through the incredible leadership here all these different realities going, look, this is what I want, man. This is what you need to dream about. So as we enter 2014, here is the list. Here are the things that we are going to go and blaze a trail for. This is where we're going because considering the magnitude of the church that God envisions and believes in, we should have no boundaries. We should have no fears to dream forward and to dream into things. It begins simply. It is my dream. It is our dream as a leadership here at Mosaic Church, my wife's dream as well, that we would be so captivated so convinced, so informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that we will not be able to help but share it in every context we find ourselves. That we'll become a people that when our friends talk to us, that the conversation always ends back in some redemptive reality of the gospel and Jesus weaves his way in and they go, come on, can't we talk about anything else? We did, we were talking about cars, but now you're on the gospel. But cars are so gospel-centric. I mean, you know, old cars and restoring them and bringing them to new, and that's what Jesus does to us, and it's beautiful. See, whatever you end up talking about, you're at work, you're in your neighborhood, you're at the park with your friends, you're, you're chilling with the kids, and before you know it, oh, there's the gospel again. No, 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 no. That's how I want it. See, I'm not interested in a church that we teach you another cool tool, give you another app, show you another four steps or 12 verses or 13 little circles, and then you go out there and, and you try to convert people at your workplace awkwardly by going, can I share something my church told me? Um, Jesus loves you and you fell into sin. And if you, you know, I'm not interested in that. Those aren't bad things, but I'm not interested in that story. I'm interested in the story where you have become so convinced, so captivated, so informed daily by the gospel that it shapes everything you do. And so anytime you talk to anyone, it's sort of ever-present. And then we will be sharing the gospel regularly, not because we have to, but because we can't help it. I dream of a place where we are growing every month in knowledge and wisdom and passion for Jesus every month, which means that we have to become a place where we are being discipled regularly and discipling regularly simultaneously. It can't be the leaders discipling everybody else. It's all of us discipling all of us. It's those who are a little ahead on the knowledge curve or the wisdom curve or the passion curve pouring into those who are not and then those that are there pouring into those behind them so that six months down the road where I am now, you are past and the other person's there and then we're just pouring back and we have to develop more than we ever have this culture and reality and idea that you are discipling while you are being discipled, that you are growing. That is the way of the rabbi. It is what Jesus did and it is what he's calling us to do. That if we're going to be informed and convinced and captivated by the gospel, we need to be preaching the gospel to each other all the time in discipleship realities where we are sharing our passions, knowledge, and wisdom constantly and we have to live that way. I dream of a place 
where people are living on mission together in their local context, where they are in a biblical community, a small group of people that are spurring one another on and stirring one another up into mission daily in their workplaces, social networks, um, neighborhoods, communities, and city where we are actually involved on a weekly basis, individually living out on mission, demonstrating the gospel through the way we live and the way we love. And I, I dream of that, that every one of us is involved in that in some way in our city. Can you imagine a city with thousands of people living on mission in their different arenas and then coming together in a weekly rhythm of missional community and just spurring one another on and stirring one another up, crying together, laughing together, saying, I I feel that suffering. Go back in there. Don't lose heart. I dream of that. I dream of a place where we are so aware of what's happening globally so connected to the global realities that God has called us into that we are, all of us, indirectly and directly involved in shaping the globe with the gospel. That means we have to become aware of what God is doing in the areas of the world he's called us into as a church and not just aware but involved. That means as missional communities, we need to adopt some of the missionaries that we support and empower around the world. And when I say adopt, I mean like we're Skyping with them every week. We know what's going on with their family, their marriage, their kids. We know what's happening on the ground. We know what they're struggling with. We know what they're praying for. We know what they've just affected. We're deeply involved. We know when they need a team. We're volunteering for that. We're sending care packages, resources. We're constantly connecting with them via email. And so when somebody says, is your church involved globally? You go, yes. Yes, we are, and a dissertation pours out of your mouth. Not, I, I, I think, yeah, we're in, I uh, think Ethiopia, I'm not totally sure, maybe Cambodia, we're doing stuff with orphans. No, no, that's not involved. I want to see us deeply connected with the reality of our global environment and deeply involved, indirectly and directly, all of us, all of us. I dream of a people, a church, that looks at their current reality of influence. Most, for most of you, that would be a, a workplace perhaps that you're in or, or in your social networks or educational networks uh, as you're jumping into the family reality uh, or in the areas of study that you're in and actually looking at those and saying, where can I have the greatest influence for the gospel in my little environment where I work and where I live? And then you begin to shape your career or your journey as a means to influence, not a means to self. That's what I want to see. I want to see us look at our city in Central Florida and say, where are the positions in each arena, education and politics and uh, service industry and uh, work industry and business, and look at all those arenas, uh, the arenas you all play in, the social arenas, and go, how can we become points of influence in those arenas? And then we shape our journey in order to become influential. If my career move has to go down or sideways to become more influential, I'm doing it. If I can get a better step up into a better position, but then I'm gonna be alone, not influencing people with the gospel, or influencing this workplace with the gospel, or influencing my city with the gospel, I'd rather move down or sideways. That we actually begin to think to ourselves, 
I live for the gospel. I want to live in a workplace or in an environment where I'm looking to influence this city. Can you imagine if all of us over the next two to three years started shifting ourselves into positions of influence within our little context that we live in and suddenly we look as a whole church and go, bam, 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 oh my goodness. Every shape and influence that's happening in the city, the people love Jesus. You want to change a city? That's how you change a city. And then you begin to live and work as though you actually love Jesus and suddenly we will better our city. And when our city gets better, then people will go, who are these people making our city better? And then we'll go, it's it's the church. That's the church? That's odd. Aren't they judgmental and horrible? No, they love their city. And they love Jesus and they're redeeming the city. I dream of a place where it is so easy to get connected here that you actually constantly stumble into it, that if you don't want to be connected, you have to run. That's what I dream about. My wife put it this way. I I don't want an inner circle of 20%. I want an inner circle of 80% and the other 20% are running and we're grabbing them and dragging them back in. And isn't that a beautiful picture? We're all in and there's a few of us going, I don't want in, no. And we're like, come back here. Sorry. I want you to wake up one day, you came here with the intent to be neutral, sit in a chair and just kind of get a good experience, and one day you wake up and go, I'm in a missional community, people know me, I know them, I'm living on mission, my life has radically changed, how did this happen to me? That's what we want. That's what we dream about. That's the kind of church I think God established us to be. Yeah, it sounds like a big dream, but it's totally possible. We just have to work toward that and begin to say, no, it's not okay that we're not that way. I want us to be in biblical community in a big way. I dream of a church that is truly spirit-led. Truly spirit-led. Which means that the spirit doesn't just lead the leadership of this church. The spirit leads everybody. If you know Jesus, you ought to be led by the spirit, walking in the spirit. So I dream of a, a church, a people that are so devoted and so on mission with the Spirit every day, so focused on the gospel, so captivated by it, that their devotion and their rest and their Sabbath rhythms are so set in their journey with Jesus that they find their rest in the Spirit, their rest in Christ, they know Him intimately, and so therefore they hear His voice and they are led by Him as they study the Scriptures and as the Spirit of God speaks to them. I dream of that place. And we are going to go and figure that out. We are gonna go and become that place because that's what Jesus described in the scriptures. That's the church. A bunch of insane spirit-led people living on mission for the gospel because they belong to a different kingdom. The kingdom of God is on earth, right? In the church through the spirit of God and we carry that. We should be fearlessly running our lives for the sake of eternity and we are gonna be spirit-led doing that. I dream of a place where your lives buckle up, click, Maybe click, click, click. I dream of a place. I pray for a place, 12 months, 24 months from now, where every one of your lives, hear me now, where every one of your lives have been radically transformed by the devotion and mission that you have discovered in your journey with Jesus. That your passion has exceeded anything you ever imagined and that you begin to live a radical life that you didn't imagine you could live. I pray that now for all of us. I pray that for our church. Francis Chan, who is an author and pastor, once said, if our lives make sense to the world, we are not following Jesus properly. 
I don't want this church to make sense anymore. I don't want it to fit the status quo. I don't want it just to be another good church with a good video and a good message and a good worship experience that people are generally good at. And that the church is generally good people being kind on Christmas. I want us to be a radical place. A place that the world cannot make sense of because they look at you and you and you and you and me and they go, who are these people? And we go, we are transformed by the redemptive work of Jesus and we are living for him now. And then as a piece on the back end of all those big things that are for us, one of the other dreams that we have that's continuing and we want it to continue in a big way is when Brooke and I first moved here, we dreamed that we would have great influence on this company that we all know well, Disney. We love Disney. We love what they do. They are world changers. They shape the, the minds of our children. They shape the minds of our culture. They do massive things around the world. And we always figured if you want to change the world, change the world changers and then you'll be changing the world. They're already changing the world. If we can shape them, then we can shape the world for the gospel. So we have a Disney campus. It's going phenomenally well. Brady leads that, who you heard last week if you were here. And uh, we want that to continue to expand. We want our influence at Disney to continue to expand so that Disney can experience us as redemptive, not as a little converters to belief systems that are crazy, but as redemptive realities, hands and feet that bring life and freedom to their cast members and to them. And we want to continue to push forward on that so that a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, Disney would go, whoever these people are, we're grateful for them. They're amazing. And they've brought life to this place life we couldn't have imagined. So we dreamed that. If, if you were to ask me, Renault, if you could put into a succinct little sentence, idea, thought, your dream for 2014, the, 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 the path we are gonna blaze together, the path we're gonna be bent on, how, how, would, you, how would you put that? That's a lot of information. How would you do that? I'm gonna read it to you because I wrote this down because this, this, is, this is my dream. This is the dream of the leadership here at Mosaic Church for our church in 2014. I dream of a people that are passionate and vocal about the gospel, mature, devoted, missional, connected, full of the Spirit, in love with God and radical in the way that they live and love. That's it. That's all I dream. That's all I want. It's not much. I think we can go and get it. I really do. Do you know why? Because even that dream only begins to taste of the view that God has of our church, the, the view that God has of the church. See, it only begins to taste. That's what God has dreamed for us already. He's already said it. We can go and get it. And this year, we're going to blaze a trail in that direction to go that that's who we're going to become. And we will not settle or rest for the status quo. We will not settle or rest for a good church, uh, even a, a healthy church. We're going we're gonna to pursue a radical, unbelievable, gospel-informed, captivated, convinced, spirit-filled, incredible church that begins to shake the authorities and the powers in heavenly places to go, I hope you notice what redemption does when the church acts the way they ought. To pull this off, this kind of dream, we're gonna have to up the ante in some significant ways here at Mosaic. I'm just telling you, this does, we, we don't sit around and get this one. We don't go, oh, we just all gotta travel as we're traveling, at your own pace, chill, be, be still. No, 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 no. You want this one? 
you want to be this crazy, this radical, this insane, this awesome, this full of adventure, then we need to step up in some ways as a church in big ways. There are probably more areas than this, but I can think of three in particular. One, we are going to have to up the ante in our equipping, empowering, and releasing leaders and shepherds in this place. We don't need five elders or ten deacons. We need hundreds of elders and deacons stepping in and shepherding, caring for, living with, and being part of the discipleship process, impassioned by the gospel, and running with Jesus, full of the Spirit. And so we have to get you guys equipped and ready for that. Do you know who those leaders are? Do you know who those elders and deacons are? They're going to rise up here and start serving this place well take your eyes turn them backwards look right back into the back of your skull and go that's me yeah that's you that's you men and women that's you children teenagers buckle up it's coming your way it's time for us to up the ante on shepherding leadership and care here and we are going to man so i'm just telling you you don't want any part of that run now because it's coming two We are going to have to create an environment where stepping into uh, missional living, biblical community, living devotionally, socially, and missionally together in a weekly, monthly, and annual rhythm, that we make that available to every single person here in a manner that you can step in. And if we've done everything to make it available in every way that we can and you still can't figure out how to get in, then it's time for you to step up and say, i got to change some things because it's non-negotiable to be in biblical community living devotionally, socially, and missionally together. That's non-negotiable if this is the dream you want. If you don't want the dream, that's okay. Then it's negotiable. But this church, that's where we're going. So if you're part of this, that's where you're going. And if you run and scream, we'll come get you. So... We're going to have to up the ante on that. And then we're going to have to up the ante on calling all of us, me, you, all of us, into a deeper connection, a deeper commitment, a deeper visibility than ever before. We can't afford invisible anymore. We can't afford neutral anymore. We can't afford sitting around having fun anymore. We're going to have a blast, don't get me wrong, but not in neutral. And so it's time for us as a church to figure out how to call all of you and call me into greater visibility, greater connection and commitment. These are big words for our culture. We hate them. And we are going to stand against that cultural trend and we're going to say, no, the church is something bigger and more beautiful than that. And the boundaries culture sets on us, we're going to ignore those boundaries and we're going to breeze right on past them because we are on the offense going into the dark places to bring light and life and freedom there. So over the next three weeks, here's what I'm going to do. Next week, I'm going to unpack biblical leadership, elders, deacons, shepherding, the whole story, and then we're going to talk practically about what that means here, how that's going to play, and then you're going to get the call. Hello, time to step up. Oh yeah, yes you are, and you're going to go, whoo, okay, I'm scared. I know, so were the disciples in Caesarea Philippi, but look, look what happened with them. They did all die martyrs, but let's not talk about that, okay? Before that, they had quite an adventure, okay? That didn't go well. Anyways, don't worry. It's going to be awesome. We're going to be okay. Second, the week two, I'm going to talk about missional communities. We're going to unpack them. We're going to look at the biblical reality of what it means to live in community devotionally, socially, and missionally, how the early church functioned under that, breaking bread together. We're going to talk about practically how that plays out here, and then we're going to call you in. We're going to say, if you're not in a missional community, it's time over the next six months to figure it out. 
I'm going to say that week, go sign up. And, no, it's bigger than that. You figure it out, we're going to get in. We're going to get in together. And we're going to live and breathe on mission and devotion socially together. And then the third week, I'm going to unpack family, what it means to be family, what it means to be the body, the bride of Christ, what it means to be the church, and how we connect with one another, what commitment actually looks like, what expectations look like in a family, how you kind of talk to each other. Yeah, my family, you don't have to like each other. I don't like my family half the time. I love them, but I don't like them. I look around, I'm like, I don't like these people. But they're mine, and I'm theirs, and it's awesome, and we have expectations of one another, and we live with those, and when we blow it, we apologize uh, later, and then we walk through it, and, and that's how we function. And so it's time for us to step into a higher commitment and a higher visibility by calling into uh, this story family and saying, if you're family, then this is what that looks like. We are here for you. You are here for us. We are here for each other. And we're going to call, and we're going to give you time to pray and think. Is, is, this, is this my family? And if it is, I'm, I'm jumping in. Because folks, if we're gonna go and get that dream, this one, ready? Let me just <clears throat> say it again. A people that are passionate and vocal about the gospel, mature, devoted, missional, connected, full of the spirit, in love with God and radical in the way that they live and love, then we are going to have to run hard together. We are going to pull out our machetes and we are gonna go and blaze this trail. It's where we're going. Just know it. It's a done deal. And we are going to go and get this thing. And we're going to become the church so that in a year, two years, three years from now, when we look at this church, we can say these words. Now this is the church, baby. This is the church. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for your incredible love for us. Most of all, thank you for your redemptive act in rescuing our souls and restoring our purpose so that we can live lives for eternity on mission, devoted to you, captivated by the great gospel, informed by the Spirit. Thank you for doing that for us. Thank you for your high view of the church, your high vision for the church. The purpose you have for us is incredible, mind-blowing, scary as all get out, God, but really incredible. And I'm asking you, Spirit of God, in this place that you would now fill us up and lead us into a place where we would become that church, living in that place. We would become a place that makes no sense to the world and ripples out into the authorities and powers in heavenly places so that we can stand at the very least and look at you and say, here we are, we're yours. Do with us whatever you wish. We're so privileged like Paul was to suffer or to be blessed for your glory, for your name, and for your kingdom. God, make it so, would you, in us. Don't let us rest until we become that place we just dreamed up, that place you dreamed up for us a long time ago. And help us to get there, empowered by you, led by you. Jesus, we're with you. We'll go where you go. Would you open our eyes, stir up our faith, call us into the impossible. We love you. Amen.